0: And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The word of the Lord.
1: If you make the bold claim to be a disciple, the scriptures are very clear that if that is true, then you instantly belong to a community that's much bigger than yourself. The scriptures will call this community a body, a priesthood, a family, living stones built together, members of one another. We belong to one another presents community is essential. It's not an add-on or an accessory to the life of the disciple. It's non-negotiable. If the Spirit is the transforming power in our lives, then community is the crucible within which it takes place. It's essential to who we are as disciples. And as we look at our sermon series, we're trying to understand in the sermon series called Cross Community Cultivate, What we want to be as a people that claim to be disciples. What does that really look like for us as individuals? And what does it look like for us as a community? And this morning we are looking at what it means for us to be a community of disciples. What does it look like? Well, in Acts 2, we see it. Now, let me ask you. As we read Acts 2 this morning, as Amber read it, and as you listened, or perhaps followed along, what did you think? Hearing the church described on these terms, hearing the church and their life together and what that actually looked like, is that the type of life you see flowing out of the church in our day and age? Is this the culture that you see in the church around us? I think it doesn't take a very long time to recognize that, in large part, the church has lost this identity. We have forgotten who we, have, who we are called to be, and that there are other things that shape us than the cross of Jesus. So what does the church community look like? Well, perhaps for insight, I thought it would be helpful if we turn to the online prophets of the Babylon Bee. If you are not familiar with the Babylon Bee, first off, you're welcome. Your Sunday will be planned and you can clear your schedule because it is hysterical. The Babylon Bee is a Christian satire website that posts fake satirical news articles about life in the church. It's very similar to what The Onion does for pop culture. And here's some of their recent headlines. Church surveys local community to find out which doctrines they should abandon to get them in the door. Local family looks forward to catching up with fellow church members they haven't seen since last Easter. Local church forgets to include sanctuary in design for new building. And lastly, they provided eight steps to finding the right church. If the preacher makes you uncomfortable, run. Shop around for the church with the best swag to give away. Pick a church where everyone pretends to be happy. If the preacher doesn't have 20,000 Twitter followers, then you are in the wrong place. You are in the wrong place. <laughs> and remember, lastly and most importantly, it's not you, it's them. Now, the Babylon V is absolutely hysterical. And we should be able to laugh at ourselves and not take ourselves So seriously, all the time, but what also makes it sad is that we don't take ourselves very seriously in all the ways we should. The sad reality is that the Babylon Bee, what makes their satire so powerful is that it's so close to the truth, it's not far from reality. And you can essentially Boiled the Babylon V and all of their articles about life in the church down to two things, two categories, that either the church has become a punchline or it's become completely irrelevant. And if this passage is true, that's really sad for a community that's called to change the world. The Babylon V is a far more accurate description of the church than Acts 2. And that's why we need this passage to remind us of who we are called to be. And I love this passage because it reminds us of what happens when the Spirit comes and begins to create a new kind of community. It shows us what the church looked like before we had worship styles and we had podcast followers, before we had denominations, before we had book deals, before the Christian empire was an unbelievable money-making machine before we defined ourselves as introverts and extroverts, this is a picture of the church when all they had was the teaching of Jesus and one another. It shows us a compelling and beautiful picture of what the church and their life can look, together, look like together when their life together is shaped by the cross. Now, it um, can be easy to point fingers at other places, and what other places do, and how they have their life together. But what if we turn the microscope on ourselves for a second? And we looked at life in suburbia. What if Acts 2.42 read differently? It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, what if that verse actually read And described life in the suburbs. It said they were devoted to the apostles' teaching for the first couple of weeks of January for their New Year's resolution. Or they were devoted to fellowship with all the people that looked like them and talked like them and the people they liked most. Or they were devoted to the breaking of bread if nothing else was scheduled. Or they were devoted to prayer whenever things got bad. And money couldn't solve their problems. Why is it that we fail to look like this story of the church in Acts 2? Why is that hard for us? When we lay our lives over what this calls us to be, why is it difficult? Why is this passage, why is this type of life together scary to us? Why does this passage make us feel threatened in the lifestyle that we choose for ourselves? What is it that holds us back from this kind of community together? Well, if we look at Peter's warning in verse 40, he helps us understand. Here you have Pentecost, the very birth of the church. Peter preaches the very first sermon of the church in history. He tells the story of the cross. People receive it. And he ends the whole sermon... With an exhortation, an encouragement, and a warning. And he says in verse 40, save yourself from this crooked generation. And when he says crooked generation, he's actually referring back to Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 78. And those passages talk about the first generation out of Egypt. They were a crooked and corrupt generation. Why is that? Well, here they saw God magnificently display his power and save them out of slavery, out of the house of Pharaoh, and call them out through the Red Sea to become a new kind of people. But they were a crooked generation because they constantly showed their unbelief, they constantly showed their unwillingness and their resistance and their reluctance to become the people that God wanted them to be, and instead they wanted to be like the Egyptians. They wanted to be the way the world looked. They wanted to be just like the Egyptians and worship the gods they worshipped. They wanted the riches and comforts of Egypt. They wanted to return and live with the Egyptians. They wanted to be Egyptian. They didn't want to be the people that God had called them to be. And this is Peter's warning to this new generation of believers. He's saying, if you want to claim this story of the cross, you have to, call, you have to be called out of this world. You have to save yourself from this generation and live by a new set of values shaped by the cross and not the culture. You have to distinguish yourself, your life together, your community. It's now fundamentally defined by a new story other than the story that the world tells. And what's true of them is true of us. We often fail because we fail to distinguish ourselves from the world and we bring in its values into the life of our community. But Peter would say the same thing to us, to say, if we want to claim the story of the cross for ourselves, you have to save yourself from this crooked generation. You have to save yourself from all of its values, because you live in a community of fear, you live in a community of lust, you live in a community of greed, you live in a community of power, you live in a community of anxiety, of coping mechanisms, you live in a community that's constantly trying to keep up with the Joneses, you live in a community that's just a rat race of success. You live in a community that is trying to utterly destroy your soul, and you're called to be out and different. You're called to be a completely new kind of people. And in verses 42 to 47, we get a picture of what this community that distinguished itself from the world looked like. We get a picture of a cross-shaped community rather than a community that's shaped and bringing cultural values into their life together. And it says in verse 42 that they were devoted. A better transla- or another translation, if you think about it, is they were obstinately committed. They were stubborn about it. They were stubborn about these four things, that they would be devoted to the apostles' teaching. The fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And that should immediately challenge some of us as disciples. Are we devoted to these same things? Does this describe our discipleship? You might be somebody that says, I'm really devoted to the apostles' teaching and to right doctrine. Fantastic. But are you also devoted to fellowship and to community and serving the needs of another? You might say, well, I'm really devoted to community and to fellowship and to praying. Peter would say, that's great. But why is your Bible gathering dust? We must be devoted to all of these things to truly become the people that we are created to be. But by virtue of not being devoted to these things, culture will automatically come in and take your devotion and lead it elsewhere. And you will become committed to its promises rather than the promises given to us in Jesus. Culture always tries to fill the devotional vacuum. Always trying to steal that devotion. So as we look at these four things in verse 42, we need them Because as we try to say, yes, we want to devote ourselves to these things and be this kind of community. But as we try to do that, it also exposes the ways that our commitments are far more shaped by our culture than by the cross. And so, what do we see? It says first that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, we have to look at a few words today to understand what they actually mean. And this first one is the word teaching. The word used for teaching is didache. The New Testament will commonly use two words to describe gospel preaching and gospel teaching. Kerygma and didache. Kerygma is the proclamation of the gospel story. It's telling about the story of the cross. Didache is the teaching of gospel living. And those two things go hand in hand. The proclamation of the story and the teaching of gospel living. So you can think about it this way. Kerygma in the preaching of the gospel story is the advertisement. It's showing what is offered to you and it shows you what is required for you to claim it and have it for yourself. But Didache is the owner's manual. Well, now that you've received it, now what? This is what it looks like to put this into practice in your life. This is how your life now is different. This is what you can do with this. This is how it actually affects your life now that you have made it yours. And we see this actually in Acts 2. Peter proclaims in the first sermon the gospel story. He tells the story of the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus. He tells the story of the cross. But then they receive the story and it says they're cut to the heart. They receive it. But then they ask a profound question. They say, Now what? Now what do we do? And then Peter goes on and he baptizes them. And they repent. He tells them to become a new kind of community and they begin to devote themselves to this, which is gospel living. I think we need to understand this because we can often separate those two things. We can nod our head at the gospel story and yet fail to actually seek gospel living. We can nod our heads at the proclamation of the story, but we don't actually allow it to affect our own stories. Just think about last week. Our passage was Romans 12, 1 and 2. Did you even think about that passage once after you left? We can nod our heads at the gospel teach, preaching, but are we also devoted to saying, I want my life to be shaped by this. What now? Now what? And I think if we go even further, we have to ask the question, well, what are the apostles actually teaching? Well, at this time, you know, they didn't have bookstores to go to to pick up the latest book. They didn't have a wealth of resources at the church library. All they had was the story and life and testimony and witness of Jesus. They had his life and his ministry as a pattern, and that's what they taught. The Gospels wouldn't be written for years after this point. All they had was the teaching and ministry of Jesus, and it became their pattern for the Didache. So what they taught is to say, if you want to claim this story, the way you're called to live is to shape your life based on Jesus's life. Your ministry becomes the same as Jesus's ministry. I think for us in our culture, we have to recognize that we are so prone to novelty. We're always wanting something new. And I think it expresses itself by all the time we always run to a new book. A new book comes out that we want to understand more of, and so we go to a book and we try and read it. And don't get me wrong, books are great, we should have them, and I'm happy that you read them. But the problem is we often, we have so many voices in our culture, Christianity included, on every topic. And we can immediately run to a book and try and find something new, and we often substitute the words of the teacher for a teacher. And we forget to put the very words and ministry and life and pattern of Jesus in to practice. Which effectively boils down to this. Quite frankly, you will learn a lot more about prayer by praying than by reading a book about prayer. You will learn far more about loving your neighbor by going out and serving them and loving them than by reading a book about loving and serving your neighbor. Are we a community that's devoted to gospel living? Are we a community that's devoted to putting the very teaching of Jesus into practice in our life together? If we're not, then the other three things that follow in this list in Acts 42, we won't be able to do them. Because it requires that we actually put the life and ministry of Jesus into practice. The second thing that they were devoted to is the fellowship. Now, a word for fellowship, you might have heard before, is koinonia. And that word effectively means a deep commonness with one another. Not the commonness of, well, we're at the same stage in life, or that I like this person, we have the same hobbies in, you know, in common. It's a much deeper commonness. And this word koinonia would often and most often be used to describe the relationship of marriage. The dynamic that takes place between a husband and a wife. A deep sharing that extended into every aspect of life, not just a few aspects of life. There's this relating to one another that actually is different now because what happens to you affects me and what happens to me affects you. Your needs become my needs. That we are to one another, that is our focus, is that my focus begins to be upon sharing life with you in a way that's much deeper than a little bit of time and a little bit of conversation. I seek to meet your needs. And we have a deep commonness with one another. And you see the apostles teaching all the time in the New Testament about putting this into practice based on Jesus' teaching. It says, outdo one another in showing honor. Consider others more important than yourselves. Contribute to the needs of the saints and show hospitality. Develop the mantra, in your life together, church, that I exist for you. I am for you. I flourish When you flourish, you do well when I seek your benefit, or I do well when I seek your benefit. And you see this in the life of the church in this passage, verses 44 and 45, this deep commonness. They held all things in common. They were selling their possessions to anyone that had need, not because they were told to do it, but it was voluntary. This isn't a government structure. It's the economy of the cross when generosity bleeds into the life of a people. Because of what we have been given. Selling their possession, holding all things in common. And they were together day by day and in one another's homes. Are we devoted to this kind of fellowship and life together? Well, if so, it immediately exposes the two things in our culture that are the absolute sacred cows. Time and wealth. Because to have this kind of fellowship... It begs for our time. It requires our time. And quite frankly, perhaps you can't devote yourself to this kind of fellowship because your schedule is so full. There's no room for this kind of fellowship because it's filled with so many things to keep yourself busy. Maybe you've bought into this promise of culture that a busy life is a productive life. A fulfilling life is one that's always, at, always doing new things, getting things organized, always on the go, 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 go. Well, how has that worked out for you? How is the busyness of life in a full planner all the time actually brought any fulfillment? Or maybe your schedule is always full because you feel as though the world offers better commitments than the opportunities of Christian fellowship. Or maybe you're the opposite. Maybe there's nothing in your schedule and you like it that way. You hate it when something gets on your schedule because you like your time. You like your me time. Each night's planned out with its shows. Or you have books stacked up that you want to go through. And your time is your own. Either way, whether your schedule is busy or it's not, the problem is the same. How can we be people that call ourselves disciples if we do not devote ourselves to koinonia together? If we do not devote the time, how do I know what your needs are if I never am around you? How do I know what you need? How do I know how to serve you if you never cross my path? There's over 50 statements of just the phrase one another in the New Testament. How could we even begin to be faithful to the, that calling and the teaching of Jesus if we don't devote the time? But this type of community also confronts our wealth. It begs for it. It requires it. You know... I saw two studies recently. One, it asked the question, what is the one thing you want most for yourself within reason? You know, not a genie in a bottle kind of thing, but what is something that you want for yourself if you could have it? Everybody said financial security. That was the one thing that everybody wanted was financial security. Now, you contrast that with another study done by Harvard. They did over the last 75 years, they did a study on what it is that actually creates a fulfilling life. And the only indicator of somebody at the end of their life, on their deathbed, having a fulfilling life was the depth of their relationships. It was the meaningfulness and depth and quality of their relationships together. Yet as the church, we do not buy that story. And it's not Harvard that came up with that. This is the story of the scriptures telling us that what we need most is one another. This is a fulfilling life but we choose the promises of the culture to be, to be hoarders rather than to be helpers. The average Christian in America only tithes 2.5% of their income. They tithe 3.3% during the Great Depression. How can we be a people that are devoted to this kind of community whenever we don't give our wealth and we don't seek to be a blessing to one another, we seek to bless ourselves. We can't claim to be His disciples whenever we say it is better to receive than to give. Sooner or later, those studies will show themselves to be true because in the end, we have a culture that says rack up for yourself financial, financial security and yet nobody on their deathbed clings to a bonus check. Nobody does. We leave it all behind and Jesus was very clear. He said, you can store stuff up for yourself all the time and your storehouses can be full, but my friend, do you know that your very life may be required of you tonight? And then all, where is all that going to go? whose hand will take all of your riches. The opportunity of this fellowship with our time and our wealth is one that we actually devote time to one another and we invest in relationships that will last eternity. And that when I seek your good, Jesus said, if you do it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. That when I see see your needs, I see Jesus. That when I serve you, there's no thing that's so small that is so insignificant. That even the smallest thing that we do for one another, we serve the Lord and Savior Jesus as we serve one another. And with our time and our wealth, that we can be a blessing to one another and serve each other's needs, to be a blessing to each other and to store ourselves up treasures in heaven where no moth, no rust can destroy and they don't expire and become out of date. That's what's offered to us in this devotion to being devoted to one another. And thirdly, we have the devoted to breaking of bread. Now, this is a reference to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. In the first century church, though, it wasn't just something they didn't worship. The Lord's Supper was most commonly done in a fellowship meal. They would gather together as one big Christian family, and they would have a meal together, and it would be culminated and remembered in the Lord's Supper. But what this is saying is it's not just talking about something that they did in worship. The Lord's Supper and the Last Supper became the very pattern of their life together. That what happened at the Last Supper became the quality and depth of their relationship one with another. If you look closely, you can hear this all the time in the New Testament. They will say, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. Confess your sins to one another so that you might be healed. Love one another the way Christ has loved us. Where do they get that? Well, if you remember, as they sit down, and the apostles told them the story at these meals where they would have the Lord's Supper and these love feasts, they would tell the story of the Last Supper. And they would say, remember, the body and blood of Christ offered to you. This is our pattern. Why? because of what happened at the Last Supper. Now, they weren't saying, this is my body and the blood of my covenant offered for you. They would receive Jesus' sacrifice, but they would also be reminded of what G- the example Jesus left for us. Yeah, we don't offer our body and blood, but he did leave us an example of what that means for us, is that Jesus grabbed a towel, he grabbed water, and he kneeled before them and he washed their feet. He washed the most filthy, disgusting parts of them. Peter said, no, not me. And Jesus said, this is the only way you can possibly have any share with me, is let me wash your feet. And this becomes our very pattern for how we relate one to another, that to take the body and the blood, we remember what that means for us, that just as Jesus sacrificed himself for us, we also stoop to sacrifice ourselves for one another, which means that we are a community that step into the broken, most filthy disgusting parts of one another's lives i seek to come in and be used to wash and renew and to seek healing for you i want to come in and be an encouragement and to help you i don't just want simple conversation i want to know how you're doing i want to move into those places that you try to hide that we seek to become and stoop before one another and serve each other but why do we fail at this Why do we feel it being this type of community? Well, this type of community is very hard for a culture that is so protective of image. We don't want to show our feet. We buy into the cultural promise that the best thing for you is to never show any chink in the armor. And it's better to hide your feet. You don't ever want to expose the places you're weak or sad, or struggling. You don't want to ever expose your sin and your shame and your guilt. And the best thing to do is to pretend as though everything is just fine. Put on a happy face. Never show your feet. And culture tells us that if you do that, you're just simply going to be rejected. It tells us it's better to pretend as though we have everything together and can we just be honest and say, you don't. And you're not supposed to. And yet we pretend like we do. And it's hard for this type of community because we feel as though if we're going to be honest and open about our struggles, we're going to be rejected. That's what culture tells us. But the cross tells us a different story. That whenever you expose those parts of yourself and you say, this is who I am and all of my brokenness, that's when you get the most out of community. That's when you feel the most loved. And that's actually when you feel like you belong. Why? How can you ever know if you really belong if if someone really doesn't know you? We hide those parts out of fear of rejection, and yet we can be a place, and we're called to be a place we can say, I am struggling, I am broken, and I can't figure out how to get through this. I don't know what I'm doing. And we say, excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Come in and sit down and let us wash you. Let us seek how we can be an encouragement to you. Don't hide that part. You are still not rejected. There's nothing you can confess that's going to disqualify you from this type of community. It's by exposing who we really are that actually we receive this type of community. And it's very hard to be, this type of, to be devoted to this type of community in a culture, simply one of image but also of triviality and distraction. It is so easy just to have all of our conversations be about work, weather, sports, and the new Netflix shows. And it challenges us to move towards one another in a way that, yes, we can have those conversations, but to honestly say, how are you really doing? You seem like you could just have somebody to listen what's going on it seems like something's going on i don't know what it is but i'd love to hear about it this type of community begs us to be one where christ becomes the cornerstone of our conversation we move towards one another with a bowl of water and a towel and we seek to serve one another and lastly and more briefly is that we are a community devoted to prayer I think we need to be a community devoted to prayer because we live in a culture that is so pessimistic and so negative all the time. And we bring that negativity and that pessimism into the church. You know, I hear all the time people say, I just don't feel like God's going to do anything. That's just the way things are. I don't pray because I don't feel like God's going to do anything. I don't pray because I feel like God it doesn't care. Or I don't pray because that's just the way things are. It's the way things have always been, and it's the way they will be. And the cross tells us a different story. It tells us something completely different, that when we come together and become a people of prayer, something really powerful happens that we begin to be unified together with one mind, just like it says all throughout Acts when they prayed together. And they became a people devoted to a whole new mission, which means that no longer are we shaped by the pessimism of our culture, but we become shaped and our imaginations become reshaped by the promises of God and what He wants to do. And when we gather together and we pray for the promises of God and His glory to be revealed among us, the Lord moves. How was the church born? You had 120 people that gathered together in a room and they prayed and the Spirit came and it changed everything. And it happened over and over and over again. And quite frankly, when we did the turbo groups and we did the community groups and we prayed together, it was so powerful. Just gathering together and listening to others pray. Short, simple prayers. Prayers non-eloquent. The Spirit showed up in a very powerful way. We need to be a people of prayer so that our imaginations are according to what God wants to accomplish through us. In all of these things, all of these devotions and these commitments, you see a community that it says was filled with awe and wonder. You were filled with joy and with generosity. And who doesn't want to be a part of that family? Who doesn't want to be a part of a community shaped like that but what's actually happening here what's actually happening in this community that's devoted to these things there's a man who once had a dream and he woke in his dream and jesus was in front of him and he said i want to show you something and he immediately found himself in a long hallway with one door on one end and a door on the other and jesus said i want you to go look in that door So the man walks over and he opens up the door and the first thing that hits him is the smell of this most amazing and wonderful stew. And it's set in this huge pot in the middle of this huge round table with a multitude of people sitting around this table. And each person has a spoon that can reach to the center of the table to feed themselves. But as he looks around, he sees the misery of the room and everybody in there is absolutely miserable, emaciated, And he looks around, and it just is a very stark and broken picture. Because every time they tried to get the spoon to their mouth, it was so long. The spoon was so long that it fell off the spoon. And they couldn't feed themselves. And they were starving. So the man walks out of that door, and he looks at Jesus, and Jesus says, That's hell. He says, Go look in the other door. So he goes, and he looks in the other door, and he sees a different story. The first thing that hits him is the sound of laughter. And he looks around and he sees the same situation with the big table with a multitude of people sitting around it with a pot in the middle. But this is different because the pot's completely empty. And everyone is sitting around, not even eating. They're just sitting around, warm and well fed, and laughing and enjoying one another and this picture of exuberant joy in life together. And he steps out and he looks at Jesus and Jesus says, That's heaven. And the man said, Jesus, I don't understand. And Jesus says, don't you? They learned to feed each other. When we become a community that's shaped by the cross and we become devoted to these things, what's actually happening? We are bringing the very power and life of the kingdom and eternity into the here and now. The very kingdom of God into a world that tells a far lesser story. And as we tell that story, it is compelling to the world around us because it's a far better story than the one the world tells where all it is doing is showing a bunch of people that are trying to get the spoon into their own mouth. And we can become a place that's shaped by the cross and tells a far more compelling story and be a people devoted to the Lord's Prayer which says that we would be a people that would see the Lord's kingdom come and His will be done on earth here, now, as it is in heaven. In closing, what do we want for ourselves as a community? What do we want for ourselves in our life together? Most of us, we're never going to be going anywhere and we're here and we're stuck together. We're going to be here for the next 20, 30 years together. What could we see in our place, in our time, if we choose to be a people shaped by the cross instead of our culture? We could be a community that tells the compelling story of the cross to our life together. And we could truly be a people that the world will know we are his disciples by our love for one another. But all of that comes down to what you're going to do with that spoon in your hand. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us. We recognize that we often fail to be the community you've called us to be. And we recognize that you've called us to so much more. We ask that you would help us to love one another the way that you have loved us. And as we come to this table this morning, that you would nourish us for the hard work of being a cross-shaped people. We ask all these things according to your power at work within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd ask those who are open to serve community